Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. It's good to be here. Welcome to 2023. Anybody stay up late last night? Show of hands. Holy, holy moly. That's more than I expected. I didn't. I didn't. How many of you that did, or, or any of us, really, um, it's New Year, how many of us feel older? How many feel wiser? I don't. <laughs> I don't. Um, just because time has progressed, has anything really changed, though? We might feel a little bit different, but has anything really changed? Yes? No? Maybe? Maybe for some of us, yes. Culture might be changing in 2023, but fundamental truths don't. And I thought we could start off the new year by talking about that. In context of a new year, and there are some things that seem to be changing in the culture, I thought maybe it'd be a good time to consider a few principles that are unchanging. So, uh, recently, I was in a conversation with a young person, and he asked me about the ills or virtues of medical marijuana. And... Before I could answer him, he said, you know, culture's changing now. And what he did by saying that to me was he automatically invalidated my response. Um, He's basically saying that it was going to be antiquated and old and not relevant anymore. He didn't know what I was going to say, but that's how he prefaced it. So marijuana might be a hot-button topic in 2023. But people have changing opinions on a lot of other issues, too, don't they? Like, what is life? Got an opinion on that? What is morality? What is truth? How about what is a human being? What is gender? Are we created or evolved? Are humans basically good or basically sinful? Does God exist? Who was Jesus of Nazareth? Those are all really good questions, especially the last one, considering most of us gathered in a church last week to celebrate his birthday. Did we come here last week because of antiquated traditionalism? Or is Christ really God and King, and is the church relevant? In a marketplace of ideas out there, do we need to change our thinking too as a church? Without dispute, I think the culture is becoming more secular. I think that's safe to say in general. One of the roots of secular change in the culture is naturalism. I'll I'll define that. It's not not a term that you're familiar with. It's a fundamental view or philosophy of the world that claims everything in existence has occurred and operates by purely natural processes. If you can't see it, taste it, feel it, or measure it, then that something doesn't really exist. 
evolution, humanism, postmodernism are all outcomes of that. Now, humanism claims mankind is inherently good and is capable of deciding for themselves what's right and wrong. Postmodernism says there's no truth. Those things are based on a naturalist worldview. It's a view that claims that there isn't a supernatural realm. Therefore, there is no God. There's some fundamental problems with it. Naturalism doesn't explain the immaterial things like morals or souls or good and evil. But if we were pure naturalists, we probably wouldn't mind because there wouldn't be a God to set moral standards for behavior. Humans would just be advanced products of organic evolution, capable of deciding for themselves what's good and just. There wouldn't be a supernatural realm. Distinction between good and evil would be blurred. Humans should strive to do good things. Basically, humans rule and God is rejected. In many facets, that's where the culture is headed. Don't worry about it. And don't let it make you feel uncertain. It doesn't need to change your thinking. But we do need to be fluent in these things. I think it's important to talk about. God's called us to be witnesses in the culture. So make sure that we stay grounded as a biblical church and as Christ followers that live in the culture. Why don't we consider some of the realities about Christ, who is our leader? We can understand how those truths are the basis for how believers should operate within a changing culture. We're going to take a look at the New Testament book of Colossians today. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now. We're going to consider chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. And I'm going to give you a little background on Colossians. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote the letter. It's a letter to the church in Colossae. And he wrote it in a similar context of cultural influences on the church. He wrote it to address inaccurate teaching and thinking in the church. He was warning them to be aware of deceptive philosophy and human tradition. That's what Paul was writing about. He's trying to get the church to keep its mooring in the midst of a confused and hostile contemporary culture. So he wrote it about 61 AD. He was imprisoned. You might remember it's one of his prison letters. Along with there was Ephesians, Philemon, Philippians. He was incarcerated in Rome, but he still had the ability to communicate with believers in the Mediterranean. He could write them letters. He had couriers, so he could communicate back and forth. So that, that's what's going on there. Colossae is located in Asia Minor, here. It's east of Ephesus. It's in the Lycus Valley. It was a crossroads or a corridor for travel, and it was close to two other cities you might be familiar with in the biblical text, Laodicea and Hierapolis, were its neighbors. So a little bit of a cultural mixing pot. And the people that lived there included Jews, Greeks, and various locals. So there would have been a mix of Jewish traditions and Greek philosophy and pagan beliefs. And the new church was having to sort through all that. So Paul's giving him some advice. He's giving him a foundation. And Colossians is accurate, too. Um, I thought it was worth mentioning, there aren't any compelling reasons historically to challenge that Paul wrote the letter. And, and most New Testament scholars would agree with that. And it's also theologically consistent with the other letters that Paul wrote, like Ephesians. And remember, Paul can be trusted. We've been following his activities through Pastor Justin's series on Acts. Right? Remember Paul's supernatural encounter with Jesus, where he was commissioned as an apostle on the road to Damascus? It was eyewitnessed. 
and his defense of Christianity before King Agrippa and Governor Festus was irrefutable and rational. The letter Colossians was also meant to be read out loud, which lends to its credibility. It's supposed to be circulated within the churches. And think about, too, that these letters, and Colossians is one of them, the early church immediately accepted it as doctrinally sound. If it had been in debate, they wouldn't have kept it, and it wouldn't have gotten canonized. All those things together lend to its credibility now. The modern readers, we can be assured of the validity of the text. But Paul's writing to the church because there was heretical teaching in the church, some sort of inaccurate teaching. We don't know for sure what it was, um, but we can infer a lot if you read Colossians. There was probably a mixture of legalism, Jewish legalism, mysticism, secular Greek philosophy, some early Gnostic thought. So there was a lot of things that were kind of getting talked about and, and mixed in. And the passage we're going to look at, Paul discusses the reality and the supremacy of Christ over everything in existence. He's making the argument that Jesus is greater than all things seen and unseen and other philosophies. And this passage then becomes the key and the basis for the remainder of the letter. So he addresses faulty thinking in the church and teaching in the church, and he goes later on to describe how believers should operate in context of themselves, the church, family, and society. So Paul's basis of thought and his instructions for believers is just as relevant now as they were then. So that's where we're going to take off. And if you want to read it through with me, I'm going to start at verse 13, first chapter of Colossians. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or in heaven. Don't you think that that's incredible? Those verses are incredible. What we have here is likely the best and most complete description of Christ found anywhere in Scripture. And when we look at the text closely, we're going to see three separate themes that become dominant within it. And these are that Christ is divine, or that he is really God. Christ is sovereign and has control over all things. And third, Christ alone is necessary and sufficient in terms of our salvation. So we're going to break them down and consider what this really means for us. And I'm going to walk through these verse by verse, and I probably won't do this every time I get an opportunity to speak to you, but I think it's appropriate because it's in what's called a chiastic structure. Um, Paul's using this chiastic structure. It, basically, his main themes are in an ABCBA format. It was historically used, the structure, to emphasize main ideas. And so what we see are the main ideas of sufficiency, Christ's sufficiency, divinity, sovereignty, then divinity and sufficiency again. 
is not an accident. It's purposeful. Paul's trying to cement these things in the minds of his readers. So I wanted to point it out to us. So let's take a look at verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But who rescued us? God did. And what are we rescued from? The domain or the authority of darkness. So I want you guys to think this implies that there's a spiritual realm of darkness or evil. It's really there. And believers are transferred by God from the dark realm to the good realm or kingdom of his beloved son. That is Christ. There's no middle ground. We're depicted as either under the influence of evil and darkness or we're rescued or ransomed into light in the good kingdom of Christ. So consider then that the spiritual realm is very real and active entity and it wants dominion over you and other people. The kingdom of Christ is the only real shelter from it and God puts us in it. That's what that says. The next verse, 14, completes the thought. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ is the whom, and it's by him we have redemption and forgiveness. Being redeemed means that someone literally paid the price for our debt or sin. And the outcome of this, total forgiveness, is that we don't have debt anymore. So think about it. Christ pays for us and forgives the debt of our sin, not us. It doesn't say humans can be good enough to pay for themselves or work their way to forgiveness. Only Christ does it. This also implies that sin is real. And so there must be a standard for moral behavior. Humans don't get to decide for themselves what's right. God does. If we could do it ourselves, if we could save ourselves, then we wouldn't need Christ. But instead we see it's Christ alone. He rescues us from evil and forgives us. Essentially, Christ alone is sufficient for our forgiveness and salvation. And there's nothing do we can do without him, and there's nothing we can do to add to what he's done for us. 15 goes on. It says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here we see Christ literally bears the likeness of God, or is God. He is the visible image of God himself. Specifically, Paul's clarifying that Jesus Christ is divine. He is deity. He is God. He was not just a man. He was fully God and fully man. And this was in response to a mode of thinking that Jesus wasn't God. And in many circles, that kind of thinking never stopped, and it's still prevalent today. That's naturalism. Look, if Jesus wasn't really God... And we're all wasting our time being here today. He is, though. The entire Gospel of John was written painstakingly to prove that. John 20, 31 says, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. It's really black and white. He claimed to be God, so he was either God or he was out of his mind. Thought about it like that? He did miracles. He died and rose again, which was also eyewitnessed. So he was either truly divine or he was something quite different. The problem for deniers of Christ's deity is that we've got excellent historical and eyewitness evidence 
of the veracity in John and Paul and the other New Testament writers. Christ is divine. Can't deny it. The other thing that's interesting here in that verse is the term firstborn. It refers to the Hebrew tradition of what was called human primogenitor. And, and it doesn't mean that he was born first in creation. Okay? It does imply the assigning of prominence and status and responsibility that results in an inheritance and authority. So some of your versions, they might use the term supreme, which makes it more understandable to modern readers. Christ is supreme over all creation. 16 begins the, the theme of sovereignty. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Clearly, this isn't naturalistic evolution. This verse says, Christ created. Now, this is a real problem for some people who would like to mesh evolution in Christianity. Paul corroborates the creation narrative, though. Christ is God and God created. Christ is supreme because he's the creator of the universe. Notice, he created all things visible and invisible. And Paul goes on to list several entities that are likely spiritual. And again, that implies the existence of a spiritual or a supernatural realm. I think the big takeaway for us is that Christ created, creation really happened, and then Christ is in control over all physical and spiritual entities and events. That's our leader. And I love talking about creation. But it's, it's probably beyond today's sermon to get into a lot of detail, but I want to point out there's plenty of rational evidence for creation. I want you to just think briefly about the complexity of the cell or the genome. Think about beauty and harmony and purpose in natural systems. Think about the thought that you're currently thinking. Only good explanation for the existence of those things is an intelligent designer and creator who is our God. Then consider this, that all these things were created by him and through his agency, but also for him. And this means that everything in existence reflects glory back to the creator. And if this is all true, then Christ holds direct sovereignty over all matter and circumstances. Which means nothing and no one is more powerful than him. If this is really important, this is really important in a cultural marketplace of ideas and relative truths that we're in in 2023. Evolutionary theory is a product of naturalism and is taught as fact in the sciences. It's inherently opposed to the Genesis account of creation. And not inconsequently, the same early chapters of Genesis 1 through 11 also record the original sin in the fall, the basis for ethical principles concerning the value of life, and the definition of gender and marriage. Have you thought about that? So if the validity of Genesis is undermined, in the beginning, the Bible isn't factual, but it's instead an allegory. And so is every other miraculous event recorded in the Bible, including the birth of Christ. If that's the case, then why shouldn't we just pick and choose what we want to believe or what we don't? You see a connection? You see how the moral lines can start to get fuzzy if you go down that line of thought? But thankfully, we're reassured here. Christ created. 
naturalistic evolution didn't happen. Genesis is real history, and humans are made in his image as man and woman. Every life is valuable, and God's plan for the family still stands. Next verse corroborates all those things I just said. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This implies Christ is preexistent of creation. Since he is God, he created. So logically, he preexisted the creative event. He also holds all things together. Christ created matter, and the physical atomic forces, and the natural laws that hold matter together, literally, like gravity. Christ literally maintains things that he created. And so his existence and work is a unifying principle of life itself. The science might be able to explain how things work, but they can't explain where the matter or the physical laws came from. Have you thought about that? Everything we can see and measure in existence needs to have a first cause. And this is a big problem for a naturalistic worldview. You have to have a first cause for light. You have to have a first cause for energy. Space, material, got to have a first cause for time. The Big Bang or other physics theories, they don't account for a first cause. They can't account for a first cause. The first cause is something that has to be supernatural or something outside of nature. Christ is the preexistent first cause of all those things that I listed. So next is verse 18. Still on the topic of sovereignty. We see that Christ is literally the head or leader of the church. It says he's also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will have first place in everything. So here we see the church is subjugated to Christ. He's our leader. He's our head. And if that's true, then we ought to make every attempt to follow and obey him. Don't you think? And just like the earlier verses that refer to the first physical creation, now verse 18 refers to a new creation. But what's meant by the firstborn of the dead is that Christ will also be supreme over the future eternal realm that we are literally resurrected as a new creation into eternity with him. That's what that's talking about. It means God is eventually going to raise his people from the dead to be with him in heaven forever. This will really happen, and we can really look forward to it, and it's not an isolated thought. And there's a lot more in our resurrected bodies in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and Revelation. But I think the bottom line for us is that Christ is supreme over the now and the future, and we have hope and eternity forever. There's no other system that does that. Naturalism doesn't do that. It's hopeless. So 19 starts to back down on this chiastic structure, so now you're back on the topic of divinity. And it's similar to 14. For it was a father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. It's saying the same thing in different words, and it again declares Christ's deity. And here we see that literally the fullness of God dwells in him. Jesus was not simply a man. 
God resides in him. He is God in the form of man. It's also a view into the Trinitarian nature of God. That includes God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Trinity can seem complex, by the way, if you start to think about it. But realize this. By having a plural nature, the God of the Bible is completely distinct from pagan deities. And only a Trinitarian God who self-contains love and relationships and communication can be the pre-existent source and standard for those things. Trinity is a beautiful thing. That's what that's referring to. And so finally, 20 completes his presentation of Christ, completes his structure. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So here we see believers are reconciled with God through Christ. And the result of the reconciliation is real peace. The need for reconciliation implies that there's a separation between humans and God that needs repaired. Think about that. The need for reconciliation implies there's a gap between us. And only Christ can fix it. And he does it through his literal self-sacrifice and death on the cross. It's the only way. So Christ died for mankind, that's us, and it was only through his death that we're made right with God. Remember, he redeems us and forgives us. And the ultimate result is that we can stand before God one day and be in his presence in eternity. What a wonderful thing. That's our eternal salvation. Now think about it. If Christ needed to die for us to save us, and we obviously can't do it on our own by simply being good enough. Logical outcome of that. Also, the fact that Christ, who is God revealed to man, needed to die implies that sin is real. He didn't die for nothing. See? And if that's true, then only he must be the one who sets the moral standards because he didn't die for someone else's relative morality. So, lots of stuff packed in, a short series of verses there. It's a wonderful thing. And some of it all, I, I think we can conclude that the small child that we worshipped last week is really the most powerful entity in the universe. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, and he literally, he literally supernaturally created the world, and because of it, he's got control over it. All of it. Everything. And it's only through him and because of him that we can look forward to and have the hope of an eternity of peace and joy in heaven. It's nothing else that does that for us. And we can also confirm by reading this the supernatural realities of the world, such as God's existence, spiritual entities, the realm of good and evil and creation itself really exist, really happened. This is a world, guys, where Christ is King and Savior. It's not a naturalistic world where humans are their own king. Christ is supreme over all of it. And if that's true, we should follow him. So it's not just antiquated traditionalism that we're here for this morning, okay, that we were here for last week. These are enduring and relevant truths that we can be reassured of. Jesus actually said, some of you remember this, memorized it, I have come into this world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It's John 18, 37. 
He's truth. There's no other philosophy or scientific data that's going to change that. And certainly a shifting culture in 2023 isn't going to change it. The other thing I think it, this, is a, this is an opportunity to, to consider powerful extra-biblical evidence for creation. Consider creation is not simply an Old Testament idea. Jesus is the creator. The rational evidence for creation gives credibility to all of the truths about Christ that we discussed today. And this ought to be a big faith builder for us. And we can have faith in Christ because we're reassured of his creative power. Think about that. Plus, realize if God is sovereign over everything in the universe and that he loved us so much he died to save us, what else or who else are we going to put our faith in? Is there anything better than that? I can't think of it. So it leads to the next outcome of we ought to have enormous peace then. And we ought to have freedom from fear and anxiety in this world because we know our leader is in control of all current events. And we know where we're going at the end of it all. We've got this eternal hope and a future blessed existence in heaven that's going to be so good that we don't even fathom it. I think it's going to be awesome. So no matter what happens in this life or in this year, we really don't need to worry about it. Don't you think? Church, I think we've got to get this information out to people. People in 2023 literally are captives to deceptive philosophy. And they need rescue. And they need hope and love. They need security. And they need purpose and they need identity. And only Christ can give them those things. Only Christ can. And they need to know the truth. And I would know, because I used to be one of them. This is the only thing that makes sense. People need you to tell them about it. And the things that we've talked about here today, these are powerful tools in a skeptical culture to have a discourse with someone. Or, if you're sitting here today, and it's the first time that you ever heard about following Christ, or maybe you've heard it before, but finally it makes sense, I want to encourage you to make him supreme in your life then. got more questions about that just ask somebody ask me or one of the elders or person sitting next to you this is an eternal issue this is a life or death issue but it's a simple thing it's a simple saying a silent prayer all you got to say is I trust you Jesus to be my king and savior so I'm going to close this with a prayer and a request that you all keep Christ supreme in 2023 Dear God, thank you for this church family and our time together this morning. Thank you for the freedom and opportunity to be here, to worship you, to study your word, to understand it, talk about it, think about it. We thank you for your word. 
and the relevant truths that it contains that don't change, haven't changed for thousands of years. We thank you for grounding and foundation because of it in a changing culture of uncertainty. And we praise you for your power and your sovereignty over everything. And we praise you for the glory of your creation. And thank you for your sacrifice and your death that only gives us a future hope of glory. Thank you for Jesus. I pray that you would change our hearts and minds. Help us to realize your reality and your power and your love. Help us to experience true peace and joy and freedom from anxiety. Give us hope. Help us to actualize that. I pray that you would equip us individually and as this church to be lights for you in a world that needs to hear truth, in a world of darkness. Help us to be truth bearers in the culture. Dear God, I pray you bless this church in this new year. I pray you bless us with vitality and growth, love for you and love for one another, so that we can serve you better. I pray all these things. In 